The Good Neighbor Network, FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and online at WGNSRadio.com. This is the WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now your host, Scott Walker. Right now that time, 814, you're listening to WGNS on this Tuesday morning, today, July 5th. And this morning we have a political forum on the air and in studio with us are those running for juvenile court judge of Rutherford County. So we have Travis Lampley and Andre Chrisman. And I guess just starting off, let's just, both of y'all, why don't y'all introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about why you're running for this position and, and uh, you know, what you think qualifies you to run for this position and we'll just go in order so travis we'll start with you good morning thank you for having us here today this is a great opportunity for both of us um my name is travis lampley i'm the republican nominee for rutherford county's juvenile court judge position uh what got me interested in this spot was um early on in law school i actually did an internship with the williamson county da's office and did a lot of work in juvenile court there and then the first first job out of law school I worked for the Davidson County DA's office and assigned to the juvenile court division so kind of from the get-go I've always had this uh, uh, an attachment and uh, uh, to juvenile court and, and the preservation of the family and, and helping the kids when they need it most so that's what's gotten me to this point to throw my name in the hat and run for juvenile court judge all right and uh, let's head to Andre now Andre what about you yes uh, name is Andre Christman, and thank you, uh, uh, Scott, for and WGNS for hosting this forum uh, with us today. Um, mine is just uh, serving the community, uh, and it just kind of became organic. Uh, I worked many years with Legal Aid Society, uh, almost uh, 15 years with them, uh, and served uh, many families that were in need. Uh, did a lot of work uh, in custody and divorce and uh, persons uh, who needed an order of protection amongst unmarried parents. And what, with what happened in, in our court, um, uh, you know, like, which I guess kind of broke out last year, uh, I had a heart always for children, particularly also as a pastor, uh, but that was something that just kind of moved my heart to say, we can do better than this in Rutherford County and making sure that we take care of our children uh, and uh, not attacking that, not, not receiving that negative attention uh, that just does not serve our children, nor does it serve the type of community that we are. And again, that was Andre Chrisman, and I, you guys may have seen it on our website, but over the last couple of weeks, we've been asking listeners to email us questions on what to ask each candidate uh, for all the political forums that we've held. And so we'll do this one the same way, and people can also text us questions, and we'll try to get to those as well. But the questions we're asking this morning have all been emailed to us over the last couple of weeks. And again, you can text us at 615-893-1450. And so just starting out, and the way y'all can jump into this to answer, just, you know, whoever wants to answer first, just jump right in, answer. And uh, if you want to make a correction on something, just jump in again and and make the corrections. It's pretty easy, especially with only two of you here. Um, But no particular order. So the first question, what are the biggest issues that juveniles face in today's times, in your opinion? Well, I'll jump in here, I, I, and, and I'll probably slightly modify. I'll kind of make it to, to uh, more uh, pointedly to this particular court. Um, 
course, you know, we, we know that uh, uh, ju- juveniles, when you don't have a stable family structure, uh, that's always going to be something that becomes problematic. Uh, that's something that whether I or Travis are elected, uh, we'll continue to have to, to motivate and encourage uh, parents, guardians, uh, uh, custodians to, to make sure that they are involved in the lives of their children. Uh, so that's important, you know, that absence of, uh, of the father, absence of parental figures being involved in the home. Uh, and and then of course in terms of having activities uh, you know poverty comes into it if you're not close to a boys and girls club or, or a community center where you can go uh, after school where you can bide your time particularly if you're a uh, single parent home and your mother's working two shifts you know you're going to uh, bound to be in an area where uh, there may be others like that and hanging around uh, influences that, that are not good for you and so uh, uh, you know the absence of the, the father and, and the home uh, um, you know lack of you know poverty is an issue that attributes to, to that um, and uh, and so those are some of the some of the factors that uh, really we see a lot of problems amongst uh, our minors in our community again that was Andre and Travis, would you like to dive into that one? Yes, yeah, certainly. And Andre hit it right on. The, the lack of the family unit is, is a real big issue with, with juveniles um, in our community and, and nationwide as well. But, but that doesn't hit every juvenile. But um, issues that all juveniles are facing in schools are, are peer pressure, the bullying, uh, the access to um, drugs, access to... Um, Weapon. We're bringing weapons to school now. Uh, it's, it's not uncommon to hear that, um, not just nationwide, but here in our own community. Um, vaping is, I'm talking to a lot of principals and teachers while I'm out campaigning, and vaping is a big issue right now. Uh, the kids are, are, it's not just nicotine that they're putting in there. They're going to school high now, and this is an issue for the children and, and for our educators as well. And this uh, next question here is, what do you foresee as being the greatest obstacle for our juvenile justice system, uh, obstacle to overcome? What is the greatest obstacle for our juvenile justice system to overcome? I'll jump in on that. The, um, the biggest obstacle is to restore just the confidence, the community's confidence in our juvenile court. Um, the, the, everyone knows what's going on or, or what the story is that's out there. So we've got to restore that confidence. We've got to get the get it right on the right track. We're, we're operating now on an 18-month backlog, and so we need to go in there, and whoever wins, immediately do some type of docket call, get, get the cases on track, because justice delayed is justice denied. And if we've got children sitting in foster homes for 18-plus months waiting for permanency, that's not fair to that child. It's not fair to the foster families. It's not, it's not fair to anyone. So the biggest obstacle is just to get in there, right the ship, and, and plow forward. Okay, can, can I don't know if I can yeah, jump in? I, yeah, I sure. agree. I agree with uh, part with with Travis. Uh, you know, we need to make sure that the court was built too small uh, when it was designed. You have two functional courtrooms. You have a kind of a makeshift classroom that sits behind uh, those uh, uh, those actual courts, and then uh, there is a, a a classroom that is opened up uh, by the uh, judicial commissioner. Uh, we need to get four functioning spaces for four judicial officers to be able to have court daily. You know, that's important. I agree 
with Travis on, on uh, having the docket calls to see in terms of what is stale, what uh, is moot, and, and, and make sure we're clearing that uh, out of the way. And I think there also needs to, to be, uh, uh, you know, to, to look at the idea of, of more settlements. I know that there was uh, a relationship that the court had with the Nashville Conflict Resolution Center at one time. You know, that's something that we definitely want to look to see uh, because that can actually uh, weed out and take care of some more cases that don't have to actually go through the complete process. And, and you know, as y'all answer the questions, maybe close with your name because this being radio, folks can't see you. Uh, that way, people will be able to, you know, put your voice to your name sure. each sure. time you answer. Thank One of the you. questions that was just texted to us, it says, do you think men should have to fight for the rights to their children? I think that um, it should be, you know, I mean, the, the way it's set up uh, in, in Tennessee now, uh, if uh, for, for unmarried parents, uh, custody usually kind of goes with the mother until something is filed in court. Um, and until that that statute is changed, that's just how it goes. Uh, but I think that uh, men can show themselves responsible. Uh, they can make sure that they step up. You not not just uh, being fathers, but you got to be daddies. Uh, you got to make sure that you're taking care of your children and you are uh, trying to be present. And and sometimes we don't see that as often today. And 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 leave mothers to uh, have to try to fill in both roles. And, and that's unfortunate. And I think that is seeped in the way in terms of how uh, cases are adjudicated as well again that was Andre, Andre. answering that question there and uh, Travis do you want to answer that one as well yeah I think the, the short answer is men should want to fight for the rights for their children um, for that parental right but yes as the as the law stands now for an unwed family custody by default lies with the mother but um, I would like to see parents work that out on their own, whether whether they're just an informal agreement allowing uh, visitation and whatnot. But but a man should want to fight for the right to um, establish his parental rights. And uh, this next question here is a two-part question. It says, depending on the circumstance of the case, would you be for alcohol monitoring devices for a mother or a father? If either of the two parents were known to be intoxicated on a regular basis while they have supervision of the child or of the children, and the other part of the question is, if yes, what types of alcohol monitoring devices would you suggest or, or rely on in the courts? I'm, I'm assuming that the the situation is a, a family that's already in the. I, I, the system? I have no idea. Okay. Well, we'll operate I, under that assumption. I, I would, it, it would sound like that would be the situation, or maybe they had problems in court in the past. Right. It, it dealt with one of the parents overindulging in alcohol or using drugs. Then, yes, I'm absolutely for that. And, and the, the common one that we use now, um, so I'm an assistant DA for the state right now, and the one that we commonly use in our adult courts is a SCRAM device, uh, which looks like an ankle monitor, uh, but it will detect... Um, the presence of alcohol in, in the individual wearing the unit uh, but yes I'm absolutely for that part of part of my vision should I win this election is a family preservation court that it has within it a substance abuse recovery program uh, so I anticipate we would utilize uh, those types of systems in the future uh, should I be elected again this is Travis Lampley yeah. 
Andre Christman, uh, I think that you'd have to, to examine each case for uh, the idiosyncrasies that they present. Um, you know, how, how you know, when we talk about alcoholic, both parents uh, struggling with that. Uh, are they uh, actively engaged in uh, counseling uh, for uh, that particular situation? Got to make sure that it is a healthy uh, environment for the child, looking at the best interests of the child factors uh, uh, as it relates to that particular matter. Uh, and so uh, if, if it does seem you know, like that, it's something that could actually be done and return and, and have that child stay in that environment, uh, then it definitely will, will be fine looking at alcohol monitoring devices. But if it's something where uh, uh, the children are not being taken care of, they're neglected, uh, not having their needs met, uh, then it might not be uh, a safe environment. And you hate to expend those resources if uh, the child is being neglected, you know, nonetheless. Again, you're listening to a political forum this morning on WGNS, and this is for the juvenile court judge seat and with us today you just heard andre chrisman also travis lampley and these are questions that we're asking them that have been emailed to us over the past couple of weeks and you can also text us questions at 615-893-1450 but this next question it, it kind of goes in line with the alcohol and the drug abuse problem that i think most of america is seeing right now it says, what would you rely on for information about a parent using drugs or alcohol? And then as an example, would you rely on information provided by a child who says their parent routinely drinks? Or would you rely on factual police reports and convictions to move forward on what steps to take? Because many times those living with addiction have not yet been arrested and have been able to hide their problems. Well, uh, yes, yeah, so we look at, at, at credible evidence, uh, um, and of course we have to obviously uh, take into consideration hearsay rules, um, uh, uh, information that's in a, a police report is, is oftentimes regarded as, as hearsay. Um, um, you can hear a child can speak to what uh, she or, her, uh, he or she has witnessed, observed, or heard. Um, and so, uh, you know, and particularly if, if you know, that, that parent is in uh, the, the courtroom. So uh, we definitely would, would listen to that child. Uh, those reports, uh, I'm sure in terms of they can, um, um, you know, they are helpful in, in one aspect, but uh, I'm not necessarily sure that that uh, hearsay can can be uh, allowed unless, you know, if some, some, for some reason the officer uh, is actually in the courtroom and can testify that he or she is actually the author of, of that report and they can have their recollection refreshed uh, according to, pursuant to the, the rules that, that govern, you know, uh, evidence. And that was Andre Christman. Travis, you want to answer that one as well? Yeah, I think you're going to have to rely on uh, multiple forms of information and, and kind of judge it as a totality of the circumstances. Certainly within the, the confines of the rules of evidence and, and admissible hearsay and whatnot. Um, but yes, police reports, uh, I think you, you're going to rely. So in juvenile court, um, when I was with the DCS attorney, you heavily rely on your, your social workers, your DCS caseworkers. They're going to be your, your window to that family and have the hands-on-hand -hand, uh, contact with the family. So I think you rely heavily on your social workers. And this next question, if a teenager, let's say they're 13 or older, and it's a custody issue, if a teenager begs for you to not allow them to go back home to whichever parent it may be they're living with, because they say their parent is mentally abusive towards them time and time again, 
How would you handle that? And again, this would be a 13-year-old or older talking to you saying, you know, my father, my mother mentally says this or that over and over again. How would you handle that situation? I think starting out on the first instance of, say, a 13-year-old saying that, um, I think the judge needs to lay down some some ground ground rules or orders as to what type of behavior is expected of the parents. Um, but I I want to, if I'm elected this, I want the family to stay together, and we want to preserve that family unit. But it, but if it can't be, 13 is 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 probably a little too young to be making that decision. If we were talking about a 16 or 17 year old, then then definitely you know they have their own lives at that point and can have a little more say so in it. But at 13, we're still wanting to flood them um, with uh, some wraparound services and, and kind of try to correct father's behavior uh, so that we can pres- preserve that family unit. Yes, this is Andre Christman. Um, you know, if it's a situation like that, we'd like to get uh, also uh, that 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 parent uh, in uh, that co- in that court or at least a meeting with them uh, to see in terms of, of what's going on. Uh, hopefully, working through the social worker uh, and uh, uh, the service that are that are, are made available through the court, we can do that. We don't want to discount or discard uh, what that teenager is saying just because of his or her youth. Um, you know, could it could have been a dispute that they had or or, or disagreement? But I think it's important to take that uh, uh, and see if we can sit down with if, if if at least someone from the court can sit down with them and see what's going on. And this uh, next question here, it it's actually right in line with what we were just texted but it has to do with fathers uh, receiving custody and sometimes mothers not receiving custody and all too often this is a question all too often we hear of cases where 50 50 custody is given to both parents when in reality 50 50 should not have been awarded and the sole custody should have gone to one parent only often the mother while the other parent should have been awarded every other weekend at most or I should say, or the father, due to their negative influence on the child, how would you handle such a case to make the best decision if you realize after the decision was made, maybe in an emergency hearing they come back to court, you realize you made the wrong decision. How would you handle that situation a second time over? I want, I, this is Andre Chris. I, I want to, and I just want to kind of, uh, tip by saying this, I want to make sure I steer clear of of, of making any, uh, 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 I guess, mention of how I might decide a specific case. I, I think that uh, is inappropriate for a judge. So I, I would say, you know, as as they are coming back, as, as cases are being monitored, if uh, matters that are on probation, we want to continue to look and reassess how things are going. You know, uh, are they abiding by the permanency plan? Are uh, uh, things going uh, um, copacetic in that home? If, if it's not, I think, you know, uh, to not have ego uh, is important as as a judge to show care, which has been a hallmark of my platform. And if it looks like I got it wrong, you know, in any given situation that that's continued to be before the court to make that adjustment uh, to say, you know what, I don't think this was the best uh, uh, scenario for this child. And, and looks like we're going to maybe need to divide time up, you know, whether that's given more time with the, the father, or more time with the mother. All right. Again, that was Andre answering that one. And uh, Travis, over to you. Yeah, so when I started practicing um, back in 2004, kind of the mindset was an every other weekend, and it it usually went to the father. And so that was a 
you know, 80 days a year to dad, you know, two weeks in the summer and rotation of the holidays. I believe it was Governor Haslam signed a bill for an equal equal parenting. And, and so in the old way, let me back up again. You started at the 80 days every other weekend, and you, sh- you had to show reasons and convince the judge that it was in the best interest of the child to move towards a 50-50 split. Well, now we're starting, the courts are encouraged to start at a 50-50 split, and, and you got to show reason as to why you should deviate backwards to the every other weekend style plan. Um, so um, if... If you get it wrong, though, in these six-month review dockets and, and seeing the, how they're working the plan, if they're complying with the permanency plan, uh, how the child's behavior has changed, if any, then certainly I think a judge has the responsibility to to modify a prior order uh, to comply or to fall in with the best interest of the child because that's what the, the goal goal should be. Again, that was Travis Lampley. And once more, the show this morning is a political forum and it's for those who are running for juvenile court judge. Our guests include Travis Lampley and Andre Crispin. And I'll just say, as far as we know, all of these questions are not tied to any specific cases. And if we received any questions that sounded like they were tied to anything, then we rewrote the question to make it more generic so that it could be properly answered. But again, we're talking about the juvenile court judge seat and election for that seat. Election day, August the 5th, and early voting is July 15th through July 30th. And we'll take some more questions. You can text us at 615-893-1450. And we'll also get back to some of these questions that we have here that were emailed to us in just a second. But we're going to take a quick break. And we'll come back and answer more questions, hopefully. Time right now, 835. Hi, this is Peter Demas with Demas's Family Restaurants. Did you know that Demas's now can cater events? We can ship most of our pastas and we can deliver it to your door. If you're interested in our catering, you can go to demasesrestaurants.com and click on the menus on catering to see what options we have available for your next event. Demas's Family Restaurants, go to demasesrestaurants.com. Demas's Family Restaurants on 1115 Northwest Broad Street. Hi, this is Amanda from Animal City, inviting your family to come do business with my family. Come see us at Animal City. Here at Animal City, we carry a full line of pet products to help your pets stay healthy, happy, and well, and to make your life a little easier. And whether you are looking for a favorite toy for your new pup or to start a garden pond, come see us at Animal City, 919 Northwest Broad Street in Murfreesboro. Murfreesboro's longest-running and only family-operated pet store. Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website, and Alexa, or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. Well, I'm Dr. Eugene Cody. I was pastor of First Baptist Church here in Murfreesboro for 30 years. What do you like most about Adam's Place? The treatment I get here is what I need. And we have to know people that can take care of us, and Adam's Place is fit to do that. I'm Terry Deal. Call me for more information about Adam's Place, located at 1927 Memorial Boulevard, across from Walmart. Now, more than ever, start your mornings with WGNS. The Action Line with Bart Walker. Weekday mornings at 810 on WGNS AM, FM, online. 
The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Right now that time, 8.37 again this morning is a political forum and it is for the seat of juvenile court judge right here in Rutherford County. And our guests this morning, Travis Lampley and Andre Christman. You can text us questions at 615-893-1450. We're not taking calls for these political forums because when we do that, it seems to get off track a little bit and the show just doesn't have enough time for that. So that's why we've asked listeners to email us questions in advance or text us their question to 615-893-1450. So this, well, actually these next couple of questions deal with domestic violence, domestic abuse, and, uh, you know, abusers are really good at hiding information, at turning stories around and so forth, making domestic violence cases really tough on the courts. And I think that has always been the case with domestic violence and deciding who the abuser is, what they did. So those types of cases are really tough. And this question here deals with domestic violence. What will you do to ensure that you properly address the abuser in cases that come before you when it is juvenile court and your main focus is, of course, the juvenile? So what will you do to properly address the potential or the alleged abuser in cases that come before you? Um, I'll jump in. This is Travis Lampley. Um, it's hard to understand really the question. Domestic abuse, if we're talking about a criminal charge against the parent, um, whether that's an abuse upon the child or a spouse, that's really going to be handled in our in our adult courts, our general sessions courts. And so uh, when I leave here today, I'm actually going to finish out my general sessions docket because um, I'm an assistant DA. So I handle this weekly and domestic violence is a huge issue um, in our county in our state in the nation uh, but how do you properly address the abuser um, really the the main tool that we have in Rutherford and Cannon County which our judicial district is what we call a DVI assessment a domestic violence inventory assessment and from that assessment they will then find what types of uh, programs um, are, are needed and necessary to help rehabilitate and, and correct the behavior of the abuser um, I think that was the question, but I don't know that that's really a juvenile court type issue. Yeah, I, I guess it becomes a juvenile court issue when you're looking at parenting plans, when you're looking at deciding, well, should this child be allowed to go back home with this parent if the child is saying this, this, and this? And if, well, if the mother or father has a past history of domestic arrest, they're sure. domestic violence related. Sure. Can I jump back in there real quick? Go, go ahead. So, so if that's the case, then yes, uh, for the, the custody side of it, that could be brought in. If DCS gets involved and removes a child while the one parent or both parents are incarcerated, uh, then yes, um, that would that could fall into be a, a juvenile court issue in which you're only deciding the, the protection and the, um, the plan for the child. But again, back to the original question of how do you properly address the abuser, I think that's going to be more appropriately handled in your general sessions court. And that was Travis. Andre? Yes. Uh, I think uh, somewhat uh, um, 
trailing what Travis said, uh, either addressed uh, uh, in the criminal context, or you could also, uh, uh, through the social worker, hopefully inform uh, that particular uh, uh, parent that uh, is claiming, or maybe has shared with the child that they, that you know, they've been abused or, or whatnot. Uh, you know, resources such as an order of protection uh, that might be helpful for them. Uh, Legal Aid Society. I worked on many orders of protection for victims of domestic abuse, and they can help uh, assist a person with with getting that. Of course, we also have our wonderful uh, domestic violence center that has helped uh, with those orders of protection. So make sure that that uh, family has those resources that are needed. Uh, but yes, it, you know, because if you're dealing with something that's unfounded, it's just in terms of the child saying this is what this parent does to this parent, you know, other than just making a note of that, you know, talking with the social worker and making sure that resources are provided uh, to that particular uh, parent uh, that maybe has, quote unquote, maybe has or has not gone uh, undergone uh, domestic violence. That's really kind of the only way that you can deal with the situation that you don't really have record of or has not manifested itself in a, in a record of DV. In a community such as Rutherford County that is growing by leaps and bounds, and with that growth, well, obviously comes parents from other counties who are bringing some of their issues, some of their problems with them. So let's say a case comes to Rutherford County and one of the parents asked to change Maybe it's the custody, you know, the way custody is divided. Um, if that parent who asked for the change also brings up, well, in the past, the father or the mother has been arrested numerous times for past issues, including uh, hitting our child. Would you pause that case and get the records from that other county just to verify that this did happen? Or would you say, no, you're in a new county, we're going to start fresh? How would you handle that? when you have one parent saying well the other parent did abuse our child in the past but it happened in the neighboring county well um i mean if, if that's a hearing we we hope that there would be credible evidence i mean obviously you have the testimony of the parent that that says that but if that parent is saying that there is an actual record or there was a a, a con, uh, some type of conviction um, um, or, or, or something order protection or whatnot uh, then um, you can get certified copies brought to the court for uh, for the hearing and we can look at that this is Andre Crispin we can look at that and examine that at that time um, um, it's not something that happens in a vacuum you know, so just because it happened in another county uh, doesn't mean it's not relevant for Rutherford County. But we want to make sure that we have good uh, evidence that comes in that uh, uh, meets all the the requisite rules of, of of juvenile practice and procedure. All right. Sure. This is Travis Lampley. Andre's absolutely right. This is more of a procedural question uh, that it happens every day in not even juvenile courts, but all courts. If there is a, a prior conviction, order protection, or, or um, through the attorneys there's proper avenues and channels to get that into evidence before the case of the juvenile court judge yes again uh, this is a political forum and this is for the seat of juvenile court judge here in rutherford county uh, what will you do to help our youth with special needs and mental health issues in our county and also within our city school system well uh, th that's a good one um they uh and i can 
uh, speak uh, to this need, and I hope that the, that Murfreesboro City Schools will, will will do more in terms to empower this. My wife actually spent six years uh, as a, a ACES counselor, adverse childhood experiences, with the Murfreesboro City Schools. They uh, are not continuing that program, and so that's just going to be absorbed uh, through um, absorbed through counselors in the city. So uh, we hope that the, that that. Uh, uh, the school system will, will, will beef up that uh, that program because th those services are so needed. Uh, we want to make sure that we are educating. I know one thing that we can do is educate the court, uh, and that's part of my care platform, making sure we know best practices, uh, talking about ACEs. All of the court, including me, if fortunate enough to be elected, uh, need to be t knowing about what goes on with ACEs, how uh, children experience trauma, because we do need to know a little bit of the background uh, of a child that's coming before before the court, uh, are they stealing? Are they stealing? Or the child who has committed theft? Or well, are they doing it because mom has a lot of men running through the house, or dad has a lot of women running through the house and needs? They didn't get cereal. They didn't get any type of food before they got on the bus to come to school. You know, only through looking at and examining, you know, those types of, of behavioral uh, issues can we understand the kind of the complexity of that child before uh, they arrive uh, at the court or get involved in the system. And so we've got to make sure we're looking at at those sources and when you talk about the aces you're talking about big trauma little trauma divorce abuse i mean there's just a, a huge variety uh, of of negative things that have occurred often in children's lives so I, you know i running for that position of juvenile court judge it would take on so much responsibility but yet it would seem like you would have the opportunity to literally change a life uh, change the direction of a child's life. It, I mean, it's it's a lot of responsibility. Yes, it is. Uh, this next question here: If a teenager, if a teenager was raped at the age of 13 by an older teen, and police learned the older teen was being molested at home, yet the older teen still faced the original rape charges in court, how would you handle such a case? Because this is obviously delicate on many levels. It asks, would you get help for the older teen and the 13-year-old victim or simply move forward with convicting the older teenager and sentence the older teenager and move, you know, simply in that direction, never actually getting to more of the issue of helping the older teen and then also, of course, helping the younger teen who was also a victim? So was, this is a really complicated question. Uh, just there's so many parts and assumptions we're gonna have to make on a radio show on a Tuesday morning. Um, <laughs> At least it's not Monday morning, right? Yeah. Um, but not knowing the age of of the offending uh, party, you know, the DA's office could elect to to try that that child as a, as an adult. Uh, but we don't know that for this scenario. This is like a law school question. Uh, <laughs> yes. LSAT or uh, bar exam. Um, the juvenile courts, I, th I think the primary, I believe the primary function of that for this situation would be let's let's help this victim, the one that's 13 or younger. Let's let's focus in on that. Let's wrap, wrap him or her uh, with some services. Um, because again, we're going to have future um, mental health problems for such a tragic event for this this party. Now, unknowing what's going to happen with the offending party, if they're charged, if that case is handled on a delinquent docket, 
then certainly there needs to be some treatment um, because that's the goal of juvenile court is a rehabil- court of rehabilitation, not a court of punishment. Uh, so we do need to address those factors. Um, but if the child is, is tried as an adult and goes to general sessions and circuit court, that would be for and, and not just, you know, shifting this problem to someone else. But in reality, that's just how it goes. Um, but we want to focus in on that, the, the primary victim. Yes. I, I agree with Travis. I mean, obviously, you're dealing with 18 or 19. You're, you're in that adult system. If that's uh, when that particular uh, teenager committed that uh, um, this uh, offense, and so uh, that will be dealt with with an adult court. Uh, but uh, um, if that person was 17 uh, at the time that they committed uh, this rape of the 13-year-old, uh, while uh, the 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 adjudication process has to go forth and uh, it could be uh, uh, that person could be even at 17 could be tried uh, as an adult uh, uh, that could be brought from the DA's office so we have to see there but would hope that we could get services to him or her or him should I say uh, since it's um, talking about a rape or whatnot uh, to that uh, particular person just to make sure that that we do all that we can uh, while that person is, is somewhat in our system to uh, try to to get them back on track because obviously there's a history of trauma there that led from from the act that happened to them to to perpetrate and on someone else again you're listening to a political forum dealing with the juvenile court judge seat and our guest today andre crispin who you just heard and travis lampley both running for juvenile court judge and the questions we're asking this morning were emailed to us or messaged to us over the past couple of weeks. And uh, we're also asking some of the questions that are texted to us at 615-893-1450. This next question says, Some fathers pay their child support but can't see their children. The mothers won't let them. And you have to take them to court. But it seems as if nothing is done. It seems like the child support office is no help either. So these kids are losing out on their father. How can you change this to where it should be shared custody? And I guess this is, again, one of those issues you would have to know more details about a particular case in order to really make a ruling. Uh, But overall, if the other parent, let's say the father, is allowed 50% custody, just like the mom is allowed 50% custody, but let's say the mom's not allowing the child to go to the father's house and the child's paying support and doing everything else that he should how would you handle that go ahead i I would say this is andre christman first make sure because this happens a lot in the child support arena make sure that that child support is being paid through the central uh child support receiving office out of nashville because there are a lot of informal child support arrangements you know i'm giving i'm giving her child support on the side i'm mailing it to her or bring it by her work or whatnot and you know and but i'm not being able to you know see the child if you have those informal arrangements or maybe it started off for, uh, uh, formal or whatnot but you know you you've kind of worked something out to the side uh then then because what's going to happen is is you're going to have to bring that back up you know to the court uh, particularly dealing with juvenile court unmarried parents to get the court to resolve that and to make sure uh, that uh, the child the child child's father is paying the support that he's supposed to do and that's done through uh, the child support calculator that really is kind of uh, 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 just kind of administrative thing you know whatever you're you're making you know and those types of things compared to what the uh, the, the child's mother is making that gets inputted into a formula and it 
spits out what's supposed to be paid. But if, if, if there's any type of informal arrangement for the child support uh, being paid and it's not going through the central child uh, support receiving office, then uh, then you're not going to get credited for that child support and you're, you're probably not going to get the days that you want. But if you're going through that office, uh, you should get the days in it, it, that you're supposed to have. And if you're not, you need to bring a contempt charge because that mother is not following the child support plan as she's supposed to or the, the parenting plan as she's supposed to. That's right. The, uh, the child support receiving unit is, is key. It's, it's there for the protection of all parties, really. It creates a running receipt uh, for which the paying parent. Uh, but those two issues should not be tied to one another. One parent's failure to pay does not and should not dictate whether they are able to spend time with their child. Uh, now, you will see, and you see it daily in juvenile court and chancery courts, cross-contempt petitions, a, a petition for criminal contempt against one parent for failure to let me see my child, and a civil or criminal contempt against the other parent for failure to pay. But you can't, parents can't and shouldn't use their children as pawns against the other child to get what they want. The fact that one parent's not paying does not necessarily and automatically say you get no visitation time. Now, I, I'm not sure. In Tennessee, is there a law that says you cannot discuss details like your dad or your mom are not paying me child support like they should? You're not supposed to discuss those type of details with the children, are you? No. And in parenting plans, so in the divorce world, um, parenting plans have some standard language in there that neither party will talk disparagingly about right. the other parent so forth right. your time with your child is your time make the most of it these kids i have three kids and you everyone told me this when we have them you blink and they're they're <laughs> gone and it's happening now enjoy your time with your kid forget about the other parent i mean just move you're you're hurting your child by talking bad about the absolutely. other parent you're, absolutely this next question, it is a text, but I'm going to try to blend it with one of the questions that a listener emailed us because there are a lot of similarities in this one. And it does highlight the mental health problems and behavioral needs that a lot of children have. So the question, basically, when you have a child who has mental health problems and they are prescribed medication by their pediatrician or their counselor, their, their psychiatrist, whoever it may be, when they go to the other parent's home, the other parent refuses to administer whatever that pill is that is prescribed. And if it's a medication for depression, for bipolar disorder, any of those mental health problems, and if they instantly get off of it one week out of each month, they face a huge number of problems that are compounded, <coughs> such as increased risk for suicide just naming one how would you handle that parent who's refusing to give that prescribed medication to their child when their child visits well hopefully that uh parent will be proactive when, you know once they find this out uh and uh that that's been ordered by uh, uh the court uh and of course that may be kind of general in terms of the child is uh the, the parent is supposed to make sure that they're taking care of their child's uh, medical needs if that's not being done unfortunately you, you have to come to the court uh and uh, we have to step in the court has to step in when parents aren't doing what they should uh and to make it uh 
a strong statement uh, to that uh, that parent that's not doing that for whatever reason, uh, and it could be across the board whether they don't uh, believe in they want more uh, herbal uh, uh, things for their child. It could be religious regions, but whatever it is, the best interest of that child is to make sure that he or she uh, is following whatever the doctor has prescribed for him or her. And so uh, that is a, is a case where the the court would need to step in and to make sure that that child is taken care of. All right. That was under Chrisman, Travis. That's exactly right. <clears throat> Parenting plans will have a section in there of medical decision, educational, extracurricular, and, med and uh, educational decisions. And there will be a check mark next to uh, under mom, dad, or, or both, joint decision making. So you got to look to see what that parenting plan is. And if it's a if it's a mom makes all the decisions, then dad has to comply. It's a court order. A parenting plan is absorbed and, and uh, by affirmation into a final order. And it, it, the parenting plan is an order of the court. So they need to follow that or else the the, they need to come back to court and then, as Andre said, the court will need to make an, uh, an intervention there and, and um, address what's in the best interest of that child. And, and if the best interest still is that mom or dad, whoever, is making that medical decision, then it needs to be enforced. Again, you're hearing this morning the Juvenile Court Judge Political Forum. We have to take one last break, then we'll be right back to wrap up the show. Time right now, 8.58. If you're looking for an authentic relationship with financial experts who genuinely care about your unique needs, Capstar Bank is for you. Capstar Bank is dedicated to the people of this community. Capstar Bank wants to help you reach your financial goals. Because at Capstar Bank, you matter to us. Capstar Bank, 2230 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, capstarbank.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender, the Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Time right now, 8.58, and for those listening this morning, we're going to save this show as a podcast. We'll post it on WGNSRadio.com in just a few minutes. But our last question of the morning, we only have a a one minute left so uh what would you do to restore and i know you kind of answered this what would you do to restore confidence to the juvenile court's office well this is andre Christman. one of the things that's earmark of my plan uh, uh my care platform is making sure that we have uh uh quarterly meet the judge meetings where we would go out into the community in partnership with Rutherford County and Murfreesboro City Schools and I've met with a number of those officials to, to do an education piece about how the court operates people to see me and meet me uh, so that they can uh, see me in a non-judicial setting so that hopefully they uh, won't find out uh, uh, who I am and meet me uh, in a judicial setting where I'm about to pronounce judgment. I like to bring in resources such as Boys and Girls Club, uh, bring in Greenhouse Ministries, Manmaker Academy, so that there can be resources for those families and uh, for those guardians and, and, and foster care parents to be able to take advantage of in those meetings. And that was Andre Crispin and closing now, Travis Lampley. I would like to think that that my um, my experience would restore confidence. I've got I'm coming up on 18 years of practice and 14, 13, 14 years of that 18 has been heavily involved in juvenile courts throughout the mid state. I've been in just about every juvenile court in Middle Tennessee. I'm currently an assistant DA. I handle both adult and juvenile court dockets. I'm a former DCS attorney, so I think this county. 
uh, needs and desires someone with actual juvenile court experience to lead lead this moving forward. This is not a time to be learning on the job. Uh, day one, September 1st, when this position takes over, is a trial day. Uh, and it's a full slate of trials ready to go. So I think this court, uh, or I believe this community, needs someone with some experience. And that is going to do it for this morning's show. Once more, you can hear the podcast of this on our website in just a few minutes at WGNSRadio.com. The juvenile court judge seat, again, open right now. And uh, election day will be August the 4th. Time right now, 9.01. Local news next with Ron Jordan.